The Bible reading for today is taken from the book of Acts, reading chapter 19. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sheba, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high regard, in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all this had happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I have been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. He sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little longer. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. 
And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There is danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message, begging him not to venture into the theater. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city clerk quieted the crowd and said, Fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You have brought these men here, though they have neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there is no reason for it. After he had said this, he dismissed the assembly. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's join our hearts in prayer as we prepare our hearts to receive the word of God. Father, your word is timeless. It is true. It speaks to our hearts and our minds. And this morning we come before you, awaiting for your message to us. Bless the preparation that you have imparted into Philippi. More importantly, we pray for our hearts, that it would be receptive soils, that whatever you say to us through Philippi may take good root and bear good fruit. And we humbly ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Oh, good morning. Thank you, John, and thank you, Fred, for reading such a long passage. Um, but it's always great to have like good chunks of passage being read in the service. I like that. Um, I'd like to tell you a story of a church uh, from many, many years ago. 
about a hundred years after Jesus Christ. And this church received a letter from an important person of that time. The person who wrote the letter was Ignatius of Antioch. Many of you uh, might have heard about Ignatius of Loyola, who lived in Spain in the 16th century and started a movement called the Jesuits. However, they are not the same person. Ignatius of Antioch lived in um, many centuries before in Syria. Uh, his birth date is unknown, and his, de his death is estimated to be around the year 140. Tradition says that Ignatius had a personal contact with the apostles, more specific, John and Peter, thus make him one of the church fathers. If you're not familiar with the term church fathers, uh, they are the first generation of leaders after the apostles, after John, Peter, Paul, James, that group of people after they died, the next generation of leaders, they are called, they are called church fathers. So Ignatius was one of them. And he became the bishop of Antioch Church, which is in Syria. And between the year, not, not, it's hard to precise, but between the year 107 and 110, he wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. And in this letter, he highly praises the church in Ephesus. And by the way, if you're curious about ancient documents, it's, it's easily found on the internet, this letter. You just Google Ignatius' letter to the Ephesians. And I want to read a, a portion of this letter just for you to get a glimpse of a taste of what was going on uh, in that moment, in that letter, in that season. He said about the church, the blessed in greatness of God with fullness for lasting and unshakable glory. And he goes on praising without reservation your most lovable name, which you bear with just title according to the faith, important, and charity in Christ Jesus. You love nothing but God alone. Onesimus, the bishop of Ephesus, is a man of unspeakable, it's important, charity. And his colleague, uh, and his college of elders is as harmoniously concerted with his bishop as a string of a liar. Among you there is no heresy. Since Jesus Christ speaks to you in truth, you have no interest in listening to anyone else. And then in a leap of enthusiasm, Ignatius grace them and, Oh, Ephesians, a church that has been celebrated throughout the centuries. So the tone of this letter is the same when you write a card to someone who has gone through a rough time, physically, mentally, emotionally, or financially, and then you rejoice with them when they're doing better. So a few decades before this letter was sent, this church, Ephesus, was derailing. They lost their purpose and they were going downhill. So Ignatius, Ignatius, when he writes his letter praising the church in Ephesus, indicates that the church has found again their purpose. He rejoiced with them. Oh, yeah, you back on track. So I'm rejoicing with you. That's why he wrote the letter. So a natural question arises here. What happened to that church? Why did they lose track? Well, we find the answer why they lost track 
and a little bit of context in the book of Revelation. For those who are more visual, let me show you in a slide the timeline. Ignatius wrote a letter praising them in the year uh, 110, and now we are looking at the book of Revelation, which probably was written the year 90. So between those two events, two decades, 20 years, more or less. And, and here is what John writes about the church in Ephesus in Revelation. In chapter 2, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and found them false. You have persevered and you have endured hardships for my name and you have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen and repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So the church in Ephesus, they, they lost their first love. And losing the first love can mean many things. But a story that illustrates this reality really well to me is when I was back in Brazil. And my church, growing up, we had a, an outreach program with kids from the slum that, that we were part of, a favela that we were part of, part of. And this project went for many years. Kids would come and have breakfast, Bible teachings and sport activities. And, and, and the project went on for years. So the church had a good piece of land and had a vision to build a building that would benefit our church. Basically, more classroom for children, youth, men's group, women's group, a better office for the pastor, a better kitchen. And the social project had to stop for, because of the construction, and it would make sense, it's understandable. But when the construction was done, the project never started again. Well, if you ask me, did the church have the capacity to restart the ministry with those children? Yes. Had enough volunteers? Yes. Why did they didn't start it then? I guess they started to love the church and its building more than those who were living around us. And when that happens, the church, not only that church, but any church, becomes alienated and insensitive to what is happening in the large community. Maybe this is what John is describing in Revelation. That the church in Ephesus, they lost their first love. The context points out that they actually lost the love towards the neighbor. And if you pay attention to the text, they did not stop in loving Jesus' teachings. But no one can love God if they don't love the neighbor. So they lost, they lo they lost their capacity to love others. Gonzalo Ruiz, which is a Spanish uh, theologian, suggests that Ephesians, they lost their first love as a result of a process of institutionalization and bureaucratization. What used to be done for the passion of love is now executed by mere tradition and routine. The official wheels continue, continue to turn 
and the ecclesial machinery, by the way, ecclesial is a big word, a fancy word that theologians like to use, to use when they refer to the church. So you could read that, that sentence, the official wheels continue to turn and the church machinery, the church engine has become its own purpose. Suddenly, love of Christ and neighbor is, has been replaced by love of success, power, and the congregation as institution, somewhat like modern denominationalism. In other words, a church can sound very biblical and endure hardship, and at the same time, it can still lack love toward others. The way that they were doing church in Ephesus became more important than their calling to love and serve people. So here we, we don't have a very pretty picture of the church in Ephesus at this moment in the, church of in the, in the book of Revelation. And the logical question, uh, the thinking, logical thinking here would be, well, if they had a fall, it means that at some point they were in a better place. And in fact, they were. They started really well. They got it right when this church first was established in Ephesus, around the year 52, more or less. And let me tell you a glimpse of how this church looked when they first started with love for Christ and the people. The way of doing church was not church-centered. The building and the institution was secondary. The church was for the people and with the people. The text that we read this morning, uh, uh, it says that Paul entered uh, the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to be believe and public malignant the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who live in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So Paul got kicked out from the synagogue and rented a secular space, the hall of Tyrannus, to have discussions with some disciples. So there is an ancient version of the book of Acts that says that Paul was teaching at this place from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m., which was during their lunchtime, like a really long extended <laughs> lunchtime with siesta, right? Uh, and many theologians would agree that Paul was working during those days he spent in Ephesus. So he was working and teaching, which means that his teachings would be soaked in practical examples of daily life, ordinary things that would happen in the market, in the street, and while they were working, those things would shape the way that Paul teaches the people in Ephesus. So one of the characteristics of the first law in the church in Ephesus would be teachings that are in conversation with the real world, with people in the market, street fairs, in the household, teachings that speak about their pain, struggles, and joys. I remember when I first started as a youth uh, director here at First, Beast, uh, uh, First Baptist, we had a great, great group of teenagers, uh, but I was having a hard time explaining how to love, 
how to love others like Jesus does, like Jesus uh, did. No matter what I did, they wouldn't get it. I did Bible verses, games, slide presentation, and I even wonder if they really had a heart in their chest. And, and, and they had, I'll get to that. Well, at some point I decided, I'm taking these guys to see a different place, a different reality. So we went to Ensenada, south of Tijuana, uh, in Mexico, for a mission trip. Uh, I think m many of you would remember that. So when we got there, some of the youth were shocked to see poverty and the precarious condition that the family was living in. And while we were there, in one week, uh, we built a house for the Hernandez Granados family who were in need. Um, and it was, was a blessing. Uh, at the end, there is a ceremony that we hand the key to the family. And some of the youth start crying during that ceremony. And, and needless to say that I, I was start crying. I was crying buckets. Right? I, was, uh, I, I, I was bawling. Of course, I was feeling a sense of accomplishment because we, we were giving a house to a family and improving their, their, their life and the quality that they would have there. But more than that, I was humble to see that those girls and boys were capable of loving when their hearts are in tune with God's heart. And that was only possible uh, because we went out of our classroom. They were with real people doing real meaningful work. And probably it was the first time that they were able to love with Jesus' heart. To love like Jesus does. I don't know if you remember, but in a span of a year after that mission trip, we got six youth baptized because of that, uh, uh, that experience. So the, when the way of doing church is together with people's reality in their workplace, school, home, office, it's easier to connect heart to heart like Jesus did. Uh, you know that my, my first language is Portuguese. Uh, and, and misericordia, uh, we translate into mercy in English. And if you chop misericordia, the, port, the, the word in Portuguese, in two words, uh, you get misery and cardia. Cardia is a Greek word for heart. It derives... Cardiologists derive from that word, the doctor of the heart, so cardia, heart. And it means that when an act with mercy, when I act with misericordia, means that I put my heart in their misery. Misery and cardia, misery and heart. So that's what the church in Ephesus was capable of. Because they were doing church with people and for the people, they were able to put their heart in their misery. The, the text that we read today uh, uh, during the riot uh, when they were disturbing the temple, uh, uh, the text says the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front and they shouted instruction to him. So he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. But when they realized he was a Jew, they shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So if you pay attention to the text, you're going to see that Alexander was a Jew and not a Christian or a disciple of Paul. And the text said that the Jews, we, heard, we read before, they kicked out Paul from the synagogue. But in this passage, they are put it together as a minority group who were not worshiping at Artemis and the minority was disturbing the status quo. 
So the majority here would be the pagans, the worshippers of, of, of Artemis. So even though Jews were hostile or not welcoming uh, to the Christians, to, to Paul and his disciple, they joined them in their pain because they were being oppressed together. They, they were suffering because the pagans were at this moment uh, making a big deal about this. So clearly the Jews in the synagogue in Ephesus, they did not have the right biblical interpretation, right? Nevertheless, the author of Acts is quick to bundle them together in one group at, in, this, in this moment. And when you put your heart in the misery of others, it does not mean that you lose your convictions, but rather your convictions are so clear and so rooted in Christ's love that you're able to put your heart in their misery and join them in their suffering and in their joys too, no matter what are their beliefs, no matter what they believe. But if you put your heart in their misery, you are able to connect with them and you're not gonna lose your convictions. And this was the church in Ephesus, friends, despite their high and lows, Jesus loved that church. A church that started really well, loving Jesus and loving others, putting their heart in the misery of other people. But for some reason, they lost track of it. But they went back, as we see in Ignatius' letter, and they went back to loving Jesus and loving others. And I'm pretty sure <laughs> Uh, for some people, people in, including me, the reaction would be to make a parallel with the church in Ephesus to see how similar we are at First Baptist in losing the first love. However, let me encourage you to see this from a, a different perspective, uh, which, by the way, I have to be honest here, it was an exercise for me, and I, I had to preach a sermon to myself. Um, so despite the ups and downs of our church, we are still a community that loves Jesus and loves others. And here are two questions that help me uh, to see this uh, in a different perspective. The, question were, the first question was, does our way of doing or being church meet people where they are at? Again, not being naive and say that we are perfect, but I think we do. For instance, uh, Pastor John and his care team are always visiting the sick, caring, praying for them, making phone call, being with them where they're at, at the hospital or at the home. Pastor Susanna has always has been walking with families who are going through tough times. She's walking also with, with families who are going uh, uh, through joyful moments in their life and celebrating, for instance, the arrival of new, newborn babies but they are meeting people where they're at. Another question that helped me to see this was, is our way of being church helping us to put our heart on the misery of people? And again, I think we are. And if you look around, Pastor David has been trying to integrate connection group uh, with the street ministries. So that what we talk here on Sundays and what we talk on connection groups about unconditional love, can be lived out in practical ways on Tuesdays uh, with street ministry. And I'm pretty sure that if we spend time looking around our church, 
we can find more and more examples. And every time that I look at those holy examples, it helps me to see the beauty of God's love to this church throughout the years. So let me finish today encouraging you to perhaps write a letter or a journal like Ignatius did to the church in Ephesus. And as you write, I would encourage you to pay attention to the ways that the Spirit of God is at work in our church by answering this, those two questions. How is our church meeting people where they're at? And how our church is helping us to put our heart on the misery of others? And I pray that when you do this exercise, may the Lord grant you the grace of seeing the beauty of his faithfulness to this church throughout the years. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.